Uh, the first reading is Jeremiah chapter 31, page 645 of the Pew Bibles. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, on page 973. Sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then he said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
We're in a series in the book of Hebrews, and um, the book itself describes its content as meat, not milk. I'll say it again. The book itself, the book of Hebrews, the writer describes the content as meat, not milk. And what that will mean is it will take us time to chew on its words. And, if I could put it this way, time to digest it. So I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to ask that he might be with each of us. And I want to say, especially those who are brand new to church, or for whom this is a little strange, because the writing is meat, not milk. It takes some time. And so my prayer for you, especially if you're new or visiting amongst us, is that the power of these concepts, these words, don't throw you off, but rather invite you in. So I'm going to pray, see if God answers that prayer. Shall I? Father, since the book of Hebrews is meat, not milk, we pray that you'll feed us now, nourish us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sustain us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Tonight, I want to begin where I finished last week with a quote from Tom Holland. This is Tom Holland, the historian, not Tom Holland, Spider-Man. Tom is an historian. He's the co-host of my favourite podcast at the moment, which is The Rest is History. He himself is not a Christian, although he's historically intrigued by it all and probably personally enamoured to it. I think he wants it to be true. And maybe that describes you tonight. Look what Tom Holland says about the death right there. That should arrest you. Here's what Tom Holland says about a death, the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to him. To be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution, the audacity of it. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. But the glory of the creator of the universe in a tomb? It's this which serves to explain more than anything else, surely, the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Reading Hebrews, you get a sense of the revolutionary strangeness of Christianity, the mysteries around the audacious idea that someone died then and everything then changes now. How is that possible? The shedding of blood then perfects you now. Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
So you've got one sacrifice, one death, Christ's blood, which has forever consequences for people with perfection for you now. What's that? And with ongoing work too for those who are, are currently being made holy. So somehow, this death is profoundly and miraculously effective. You see, normally, as far as I can tell, death has no upside. When we're talking about someone you love, death is demise. Death is death. It normally is the end of a life, not the beginning of life. It normally ends, ends revolutions, not begins them. It normally flattens the heart, not gives the heart new life. That is, it's depressing, not joyful. Now, we know this, and maybe, maybe you're experiencing this right now. It is, you might call it, a catastrophe. Catastrophe comes from two Greek words, catastrophe, or down and turning. A catastrophe is a downturn. It's an event causing great and usually sudden damage or suffering. There's something catastrophic about death. And yet Christians are always on about Jesus' bloody death. I made this point last week. His, in the Greek, his hema, where we get our word hematology. His hema, his killing, his death, his sacrifice, his blood shed. We are on about an instrument, an ancient instrument of torture, a cross, and a twisted and defeated corpse, a sacrifice. Now, it's more than that. We'll come to that at the very end. But it's not less than that. But we don't say, Christians don't say, it was a catastrophe, a downturning. We say it was the opposite. We say it is the glory of God and my life. It's interesting that we don't have an English word for an event that causes great and sudden joy or great and sudden life. We don't have a word that is the opposite of catastrophe. We say a great thing happened, yeah, a catastrophe, a bad thing happened. We don't, have a, we don't have the word for a great thing happened. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, came up with a word, and I'll introduce you to that word later. It's an important word for what we'll learn today. So what I want to do now is take you through these 18 verses that Tiffany just read to us. There's overlapping ideas from the last few weeks. Right? So you hear the same thing again. But from next week on, we'll be hearing implication after implication after implication of this gospel. Lots of pay dirt, lots of gold for those who have been digging. So my four points today, it's in your new sheet, service sheet that you were handed when you came in the door. Something I haven't done for like years and years around here, which is to give you four Ps. I'm almost embarrassed by it. <laughs> Roger can appreciate <laughs> Give sermons. Four Ps. Proposition. Proof. Promised. Pay dirt. The writer of Hebrews has a proposition for us. I'll tell you about that in a moment. He's got proof of said proposition. Where it's promised in the Jewish scriptures, and then some pay dirt, the practical implications or the gold, which will continue on in the following weeks. So firstly, he's got for you a proposition. Something for you to accept or reject. 
The proposition here is simple, even as mysterious, and it begins in verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open. Verse 1, the law, Torah, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And so there's, if you could look at me for a moment, there's a shadow and a substance which causes the shadow. And this is a point made over a number of weeks through the book of Hebrews. The law, which is only a shadow, the law refers in this instance and by the context, it refers to those ancient sacrifices made by ancient high priests for the ancient Israelites. These sacrifices are the shadow yeah, of something substantial. They were pointing to other realities or real hope. Because they are the shadow, not the realities themselves, they can't do the thing that God really wants to do for you. Those sacrifices, ancient ones, they could, they could have made you ritually or externally clean, but not ultimately clean, not internally clean. Or to use the language of the book of Hebrews, they couldn't make you perfect. You can see the proposition right there in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, because they're only a shadow, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, see the point he's making, they can't make perfect those who draw near to worship. It can't do it. A little bit like a copy of a home. I'm going to climb that pulpit. Give me a second. See, in the morning we use that. <laughs> Maybe we should down here. This is a copy of my homes, the rectory down at Miller's Point. A little bit of renovations. Uh, now, here's a copy of my home. I can't live in the copy. I could fold it over a number of times and try to make a pillow. But that's all I can do with the copy. Tonight I go to bed. It won't be on a copy, a piece of paper. You can have as many copies as you like. It doesn't make a home. Well, same thing is going on here. The point has been made, if you want to flick back to chapter 7, verse 18... The writer says the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And a similar point is made in chapter 9, verse 10, where he just makes the point that these, the shadow, the sacrifices, the regulations, they were a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. They are external regulations applying until the time of the new order, the revolution. The real thing that casts the shadow, the thing that's substantive and effective, the house itself, not the copy, is the sacrifice of Jesus and all that he achieves. If you don't mind me quoting the Book of Common Prayer, it is the remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion, his suffering, his forgiveness and all other benefits. And it's in verse 10, and by that will, the obedience of of Jesus to the Father, we'll come to that. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Again, the old 1662 Book of Common Prayer. God, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, 
to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Amen? <laughs> you can see, by the way, that was written in 1662, and you can see how the backdrop of the Reformation uh, against the then Roman Catholic Church, when they looked at tables like that one and called them an altar. They said the Mass each time, and you could see them hearing these words saying, no, 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 Christ offered once for all, full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice. That's why that's called a table, by the way, and not an altar. So perhaps we could distill the proposition with these words, and I'll read it twice just so you can get it. The blood of Christ has achieved something the first covenant could never achieve, that is perfection or inner cleansing, forgiveness. His life offered once for all makes the worshipper holy or perfect and therefore draws a line under the first covenant. I'll read it again. The blood of Christ has achieved something the first covenant could never achieve, that is perfection or inner cleansing, forgiveness. His life offered once for all makes the worshipper holy and therefore draws a line under the first covenant. Perhaps it's best summed up by this old hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, and not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and therefore I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Amen? We might sing that to conclude the message in a few moments' time. He's got proof of the proposition, and his proof is also simple, even if mysterious, and that is, if the first covenant sacrifices achieved what God wanted, that is perfection, they wouldn't still be being offered. They would be finished. But if they were still being offered at the time of writing, which dates this letter before 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple, they were still being offered, and the writer says, the endless year-after-year thing is the dead giveaway the proof that we're still dealing with the shadow. So verse 2, shadow can't make you perfect, and you know it because otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. They wouldn't have felt guilty. Now we'll come back to that profound idea, not feeling guilty. I mean, how do I get that? Like I, how can I shake feeling guilty? Wait for the pay dirt in point number four. But the point is, a worshipper, a lay worshipper, could have walked up to the high priest and said, what are you doing? My guilt has been taken away. God's done it. So there's no longer any reason for this sacrifice you're doing. There's no reason for it. Just stop it already. They would have said that. That's the proof that this is a shadow. The writer tells you why the first covenant was needed. Verse 3, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So annually, ancient Israel needed to be told the problem that you have with the holy God has not been solved. The blood of bulls and goats told us that. They were a good annual reminder, right? And uh, you've got a sacrifice lamb, burnt offering, blood in the temple. You could smell 
the need for forgiveness. You could smell it. But they had their limit. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something else, or rather someone else, was needed. And so you get this glorious word in verse 5, therefore, 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 when Christ came into the world. This coming, Christ coming into the world, was promised. And the writer uses lots of examples from the Old Covenant. Because the purpose of it is to help Jewish believers in Jesus stay committed to Jesus despite the fact that their property might be confiscated, despite the fact they might be put in prison, despite the fact that they might die or their children might die. So he's giving them good, solid reason to stay standing till the end. And to do that, he'll need to persuade them from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And so in verses 5 to 9, he quotes Psalm 40 that we read a moment ago. But a little recap from Rob's sermon a couple of weeks ago. The writer of Hebrews uses the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Just like we have different translations now, they had Hebrew Scriptures written in Hebrew, but they also had a Greek translation of it, which is sort of the language of the people. It's called the Septuagint, or the LXX, LXX. If you Google LXX and just look at the first paragraph of Wikipedia, you can discover what this translation of the Bible is. The Bible was useful for those who couldn't read Hebrew, which is a growing number of Jewish people from the 3rd century BC. Now, the writer quotes Psalm 40, but not, but in the LXX. Our translations are based on the best Hebrew. Our Bibles say this, I've got it on the screen in verse 6, Psalm of David, sacrifice and offering you, God, did not desire, didn't want it, but my ears you have opened. His translation said this. It's footnoted in your NIV. We're not trying to hide it. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I've come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. You wanted a body, not bulls. And here I am. I'm prepared to be that body, a point he makes, he makes in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and it's fascinating, by the way, that the writer of Hebrews has determined that what David said then is now Christ's words when he came into the world. Later, he'll say that Jeremiah 31 is the Holy Spirit's words. I love what the writer of Hebrews does with Scripture, even if it's perplexing. By the way, if you think the Bible is a neat book, all sewn up, buttoned down, you know, tightly knit together, then, you know, it's not. And uh, it's, it won't fail to lead you to Christ and to salvation. But you have to trust God with His Word. Verse 5, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering God, my Father, you did not require, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You are not pleased. Which body? I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. I'm the body that you need. And sacrifices and offerings are not needed. It's hard not to think that the writer 
thought of Abraham's, well, the call of God to Abraham to sacrifice a body, to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's in Genesis, and uh, the place, it takes place on Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem was going to eventually be built centuries later, where Christ, in his body, would die just outside that city. But Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac on a lonely mountain called Mount Moriah. He was told to sacrifice a body. It's very hard to read, by the way. When I was a teenager, I'd read this and think, oh, yeah, he didn't, Isaac didn't die. It's a test to see if he trusted God. And Hebrews makes the point in chapter 11 that Abraham figured that God would raise the dead. But I've got to tell you, as I read it as an adult, especially with children, hard to read. But God did not require a body sacrifice, a human sacrifice, which is very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. Christianity stood against that. Uh, but Abraham said all along, very calmly in that moment, God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the sacrifice. He even says it to Isaac, walking up the mountain. And God did, a lamb coming out of the thicket, the bushes, after he trusted God. But here a body is required. And again, more backing or promise from scriptures in verses 15 through 17, the use of Jeremiah 31 again, this Holy Spirit testifies, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write my laws on their minds. And then the Holy Spirit adds, verse 17, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Like God, your, your sins and lawless acts, God. The point was that God was always heading in this way. Scripture always pointed at God forgetting your sins through the body of Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross, a point reinforced in verse 10. And by that will, Jesus saying, here I am, I'll do your will. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So lastly and finally, what's the pay dirt from all of this? Verses 11 through 18 and continuing in the weeks to come. Well, the first is that you and I need to learn how to rest in God, to rest in Him. So rest, please. I wanted to say rest in grace, and that's not untrue, but really you are resting in the finished work of Christ. God's done it all. Are you worried? Are you striving? Are you trying to prove yourself to others, or maybe to yourself, your place in the world? Are you trying to prove yourself to God, that you're better than you are? If you are worried, striving, trying to prove yourself, then perhaps you might be more in tune with the busyness of the first covenant. You are standing too much. Look or listen to verse 11 as I read it to you. There's something in the literature here which tells you that um, the busyness is unsatisfying. Listen, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Do you hear it? <laughs> 
to hear it in the language? Lots of standing, lots of activity, performance, lots of repetition, always trying to do something, and it can't be done. Verse 12 offers a contrast. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered once for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Surely, verse 11 is being contrasted by the calmness of verse 12. I read in a commentary this week that for the last five minutes of human history, you go to work sitting, 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 computer, sitting, 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 and then when you finish work, you stand up. You say, I'm going to have a break now and go for a walk. But for most of human history, indeed, for most of the people who live today, work is done standing, and you sit to take a break. With the old idea in mind, the priest is standing, working, but Jesus Christ, once he'd offered once for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Elsewhere it says he intercedes for us, but here he waits. Sitting and waiting implies finished work. Remember that Jesus Christ on the cross, that ancient instrument of torture, he cried, it is finished. Oh, the audacity of it. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect, perfect, forever, those who are being made holy. Rest. Second thing is that we need to learn to tell the gospel to yourself. We did it in the first song today. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh my soul, bless the Lord. Speak to your own heart, please, and say to your heart, you have been made perfect. Not because of the righteous things you've done, but because of his mercy. You've been made perfect already. The first covenant couldn't cleanse people's consciences. They couldn't give you the knowledge that God says that you're clean. We're told the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all if they had been able to achieve that and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And the implication is, if you know the blood of Jesus Christ, you trust him, then you're made perfect and therefore you are to no longer feel guilty for your sins. You're cleansed once for all. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is now to the cross. And we're not talking about seared consciences. You know, the person who never feels guilty usually belongs behind bars. We're talking about a humble follower of Jesus Christ, faithful to God, living out of the sure knowledge that you have been forgiven despite all the muck. Divinely forgiven. You can see how Jeremiah 31, a new covenant, law in their hearts and minds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, and they have been, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. There's nothing more you need to do. There are no necessary pilgrimages for believers. God has made the one necessary pilgrimage to the cross and to the other side, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Tell yourself the gospel. Third, know that you are, are not finished work. 
tell yourself, God has more to do with me. It'll be painful all along the way, but the work of salvation has not been finished. You are being made holy as you trust God with your life and indeed death as you remain firm that you are ongoing work. He's put his heart into your heart, his law in your mind. So go with him and do not resist, resist the sanctifying work of God in your life. And fourth, you'll need to learn confidence again. We'll relearn it. Because the next verse is, Therefore, my sisters and brothers, we have confidence. But this is for next week. Jesus' death could have been seen as a tragedy. And in a sense it was. You know, God turned up and this is how humanity treated God. Or it could have been seen as a catastrophe, a downturn, an event causing great and usually sudden damage or suffering. But what if it were otherwise? What if it were the opposite of a catastrophe? What if it were sudden and favourable, a sudden and favourable resolution of events in a story, a happy ending? You see, at the heart of Christ's death is his resurrection. Now he is seated, waiting for all things to be renewed. This is good news. J.R. Tolkien picked up this gap in the English language, and so he coined a new word. It's on your news sheet if you want to look it up. He framed the resurrection as the opposite of a catastrophe, and he called it a you, which means good, a you catastrophe, a, a good turning he writes this, he says, the resurrection of Jesus is the catastrophe of the Christian story. The story begins and ends in joy. The big things are done and achieved. The realities themselves are yours. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. You want to sing this? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is now to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Let's sing it together, just seated, just seated. And we'll do the, it is well with my soul at the end. Let's do it. <coughs> my sin, oh, my sin, nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my soul 